Uh, my name is Tim Bedall, and I serve as lead pastor here at the church. And I'm going to ask you to take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Genesis, to the very end of the book, Genesis chapter 50. We have been looking at the life and times of this man who has more written about him in the book of Genesis than anybody else, more than Adam and Eve, more than Noah, more than Abraham, more than his father Jacob. Joseph would have 14 chapters of the first book of the Bible dedicated uh, to him and his life, and rightly so, because Joseph was an amazing man who taught us and it continues to teach us amazing things. There have been three things that we've learned about in this series. First of all, Joseph. We've learned about the life and times of Joseph. We've learned how God used the good, the bad, and the ugly of Joseph's life to do amazing things. And, and we've seen what a model of faithfulness an average man like Joseph is when God grabs a hold of him. And what amazing things can be done in the life of a Christian when God grabs a hold of us and we live according to his word and will in our lives. The second thing we've learned about is ourselves. We've learned that amidst the amount of time and the amount of distance that the story and the man and life of Joseph is from us in the 21st century here in America, that many of the parts of the story and many of the characters within the story we can resonate with. And I've heard over and over again, whether it's through the small group ministry or through your conversations with me, uh, the place you find yourself in, in the life and times of Joseph. Probably more evident uh, is seen in, in the wrongs that have been done against you and your calling uh, to be obedient and forgive. And knowing and recognizing the great difficulty it was for Joseph to forgive his brothers of the mistreatment and abuse that he would suffer under them and how we need to suffer well and forgive those who wrong us. But most importantly, the third thing that we learned is that we serve an incredible God. The story of Joseph, really, as you'll learn later in this lesson, is a story about God and his faithfulness and his, his ability to take the garbage in our lives and make a beautiful story and a beautiful ending through it all. And we can put our faith and trust and our hope in that God who does all things well. We can put our, our trust and hope in that God even when times of trouble come our way. And so we've learned that God is utterly faithful to be relied upon. He's utterly faithful to take what is so uh, damaging in our lives and use it for the good of ourselves and the good of those around us. We have learned a great deal. Now in the new year, we're going to embark on the, uh, the letter of James, five chapters of practical Christianity, real faith for real life. And I would encourage you, if you're not a part of a small group, join a small group in the new year. That's where community is going to take place. That's where we're going to spend time as a, as a group of people in homes uh, throughout the week. Studying the Word of God, studying the book of James and applying it to our lives. You can sign up in your friendship registry and we can make you aware of all the small groups and where they're meeting and when and how you might be a part of it starting in January. But we find ourselves in Genesis 50 today. And we find ourselves at the end of the story. In Genesis chapter 50, we're going to start in verse 15 and we're going to go to the very end of the book. And we're going to see how Moses closes out this first book of the Scriptures. And what we're going to see is 
while many years are going to span the time of chapter 50, verse 15 through 26, there's going to be some 50 years that are going to be spanning this time, that many things remain the same as they were earlier in the story. So let me read. We'll ask God's blessing on our time. And then I want to draw two applications from our time together in God's Word. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because of the evil uh, they did to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mekur, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you, and I thank you that we can turn to your word. We need your word this morning. Lord, as people who are finite, as people who are frail, we come with many questions as how we should live our lives, of the direction we should go in, of decisions that need to be made. Lord, there's temptations in the world that we need help in trying to steer clear of. And we come to your word each and every week, a reminder that apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, as we humble ourselves and listen to your word this morning, Father, I pray that we would apply it to our lives and we would allow it to change us from the inside out. Lord, that what we hear from your word today would be put into practice, that we would become doers of your word and not simply those who hear it and then forget what it says. So challenge us by your word today. Lord, I would be remiss not to take a pause and, 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 and ask your blessing on the gifts that have been given today. Lord, each and every week we are humbled by what you're doing in the lives of your people. We are humbled by the faithfulness of, of your people who give uh, of their tithes and offerings to you. Lord, bless this all-in offering. Bless it, Lord, so that we can complete the work we have in 2016 and we can launch into a new year of ministry where we are seeing firsthand the life change that is taking place. Remind us that this is not our home. This is not where we should be investing uh, all of our time and treasure, but also recognize you're building a kingdom and glory and that you call us to invite those who don't know you into that kingdom. Lord, I pray that the gifts that have been given will further that gospel work, not only here, but to the uttermost parts of the world. We love you and give you the praise for everything. In Christ's name, amen. In the TV world, 
A series finale is an important marker for any show. If you've ever been a fan of a particular sitcom or drama that has gone on for any amount of seasons, you know that at some point the TV producers and directors are going to bring to an end the storyline and the characters that you've come to love. Now, within that storyline, at some point, they've got to tie it all up with a bow. They've got to bring an end to what we have known about the people we've been watching all of these years. A series finale gives the producers and the directors an opportunity to close out the story. To bring to an end maybe some of the mysteries or some of the unspoken things that have happened in the life of the sitcom or TV drama that we've watched. Maybe it's a transition for the characters from one part of their life into another. Uh, maybe it's uh, finally addressing or dealing with uh, the major issue uh, that has befallen uh, the people within the episodes that we've watched over and over again. Whatever it is, series finales are popular in our TV age. They're popular because people want to know how the story ends. They want to know that all of their time and all of their investment watching hours upon hours of those TV programs, that it was all worth it. But I've got to be honest with you, sometimes it isn't worth it. Sometimes there's a program that you've watched for years, and one bad series finale can ruin all of the time. Let me give you an example. While I never watched the show, I was looking forward to it because everybody said it was an awesome show. The show lost. And for some of those that watched it know that it was an awesome show until the season or series finale. And the series finale was so bad that people went on to blogs and went on to all kinds of chat rooms on uh, the internet to talk about the wasted amount of hours that they spent. If they had known the show was going to end like that, then they would have never started watching it. A series finale needs to be done well because people are expecting for the story to come to an end. But the big thing about series finales is that series finales in our day have been some of the most watched television programs in all of TV watching. Let me give you the top five, and maybe you watch some of these shows. Number five was the show Friends in the 90s, a group of friends in New York City. And they would have their season finale after years of being on, uh, showing the lives of these people. 52 million viewers would watch the series finale. That is 62% of all TVs in America would be tuned to watch how this show would come to an end. Number four, Seinfeld. Seinfeld would have 76 million viewers. To put that into a percentage, 68% of Americans tuned in to watch how Seinfeld would end. And if you remember, it's kind of an odd ending. I remember this one particularly. They end up in a jail cell, and the, pan, the camera pans out, and that's just kind of the end. It's, it, what happens, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen with them, how long they're going to be in jail. It ends. Number three, we've got to go a little farther back, the fugitive. Back in the 60s, The Fugitive, a story of a man who is wrongfully um, charged with a crime he did not commit, and he's on the run. And the question is, how is Dr. Richard Kimball going to be uh, captured? And the series finale would garner 78 million people watching the program. That is 70% of all TVs in America were tuned in to how The Fugitive was going to end. But that would pale in comparison to a Cheers series finale, of seeing the gang from a bar in Boston and how life would end up for all of them. Uh, on that Thursday night in the late uh, 80s, Cheers would garner a 94 million 
person viewership. That means three quarters of all Americans tuned in to find out what would happen at the bar in Boston. But none of that would even come close to the number one series finale. Anybody got a guess? I'll give you nothing for it. But you got a guess? MASH. Some of the kids over here have no clue what we're talking about. I remember I was a young kid, and I remember my parents being excited about the end of MASH. A show that had lasted well over a decade. A show that was about the Korean War in a hospital that was taking care of the wounded in uh, Korea would finish up, I believe, around 1991 or 92, if I remember my numbers right. And it would garner, listen to this, 125 million viewers. On that night that the series finale of MASH was shown, 84% of TVs were tuned into that. No program, no Super Bowl, no World Series game has ever come close to having 125 million people watching. Series finales are important. Series finales can put the, cher- uh, the um, a cherry on the top of the Sunday that tells us that all of the time that we've invested in a story was worth it. Today we come to a series finale in the life of Joseph, and I believe that we have not wasted our time. I believe that we have learned a great deal, and Moses could have ended the book of Genesis in all manner of ways. But when Genesis finishes up, It finishes up in a way that maybe we wouldn't have thought of. Of all the things that happened in the book of Genesis, to end this way. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Period. End of story. What a way to end. But I will tell you, since we now know the story of Joseph, it's a perfect ending. What a great place to end. What a great place to not add any more superfluous words or statements. Joseph, this model citizen, this model man who followed God in the roller coaster of life, who seemingly did all things well, even though being a man who was like us, a man of sin and a man of struggles, that the end of his life would be the captivating point of this incredible book. This book that would set the trajectory for the other 65 of Holy Scripture. It's from this series finale that two truths come out. I want you to see today that in this series finale, we first of all see a lesson in forgiveness. A lesson in forgiveness. Last week we were spectators to the death of Jacob, Joseph's dad. We watched the funeral and we saw all of that. In verse 15 comes the funeral luncheon. The text tells us that uh, in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Let's stop there. So I want you to imagine the funeral is over. They've made it back to someone's house, someone in the family. Uh, They've got five bees that serve in a luncheon. Everybody's enjoying the food, okay? And they're sitting there, and they're, they're eating their food, and, and the ten brothers say, Hey, hey, come over here. Hey, real quick, let's talk about something. Guys, dad's dead. And you know what's going to happen now that dad's dead? Joseph is going to come after us. Joseph is going to finally repay us for what we've done. Now you say, why would they think that? I want you to understand that that's exactly what their uncle Esau did when Isaac died. 
Remember Esau, Esau and Jacob had a quarrel amongst each other? Esau doesn't do anything, doesn't pursue his brother until his dad dies, so he doesn't have to grieve his dad over what he's going to do to his brother. So I, uh, Esau says, I'll wait till dad dies, and then I'll go repay my brother for the evil he's done. So the brothers are like, well, that's what Uncle Esau did. And so that's what Joseph's going to do. He waited for dad not to grieve dad. And he's played the Mr. Nice Guy. He's played lovey, lovey brother. And now that dad's gone, now he can cause the revenge to take place. But that's not what he does. And what we see today in this text is the issue of forgiveness. Now we could talk about forgiveness between one another, but we did that earlier when Joseph forgave them the first time he had made mention of who he was. And he told them, come, I love you, and I care for you, and and I will minister to you. He had shown them forgiveness and love in that horizontal relationship, and the care and the comfort that he had given all these many years when they were in Egypt. They have known nothing but love and benevolence from their brother. But what I want you to see this morning is a spiritual truth that is applied not to our relationship with one another, but how we can begin to relate to God with regards to His forgiveness and our, for us. And I want you to see how we respond to God's forgiveness and how at times we dismiss the forgiveness of God because we think that our crimes or our sins are so bad that they can't be forgiven. Notice a couple things about this lesson in forgiveness. Number one, forgiveness is necessary. It's necessary because our sin is severe. Our sin is severe. Verse 15, they say, after all these years and all the love that Joseph has shown them, he's forgiven them, he's provided for them, he's protected them, the brothers think it's a trick. They think that he's just waiting in the, in the weeds for an opportunity to pounce on them. But he's forgiven them. But notice, the reason why they're seeking, the reason why they're so worried about this issue of forgiveness, is it says, he will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You should underline, if you underline in your Bible, all the evil we did to them. In that phrase is a mouthful. In that phrase speaks to the great evil that had been done. I mean, this was not, listen, this was not you stealing your sister's blouse so that you might have an outfit that works, ladies. This isn't your brother stealing a basketball or a pair of sneakers to wear them without you knowing about it. These aren't misdemeanors. These are high crimes. The things that Joseph's brothers did was unconscionable. I mean, my goodness. Many of us have, 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 have suffered abuse from family members. But surely Joseph could be a poster child of massive abuse by his family. The bad blood had been something that would take the family off course. On that fateful day where they would take their brother and throw him into a pit and then turn around and sell him into slavery would be a day that would change everyone's relationship. It would change Joseph's relationship to his brothers. It would change the brothers' relationships with one another. It would change the relationship of the brothers to their father, Jacob. The family would never be the same. And it is articulated by the brothers, by the brothers themselves. We have done 
evil against our brother. They recognize when they first come to meet the prime minister of Egypt, who they don't know to be their brother, they recognize that God is judging them earlier in the story for the evil that they have done. This is, again, not a misdemeanor. They believe this is a great offense. Listen, Joseph has every right to come after us because of the evil and the abuse and the betrayal that we have shown him. Our sin is severe. Now... What a great time for us as a people to pause and to recognize that we too have sinned and our sin is severe, not only against one another, but most importantly or ultimately with God. We have sinned against our God. Like the brothers in the story of Joseph, we have betrayed our God. In fact, if you were to take Joseph and his brothers out of the storyline, you could easily put us as the brothers and God as Joseph and watch how that plays out. God is special. God is the favorite. God is the one who seemingly has all of the blessing and all of the opportunity. And and what do we do? Instead of falling in love with him and pursuing him, we get jealous of him. We say, why does God get all the good stuff? Why does God get to make the decisions? Why does God get to uh, make uh, all of the uh, commands? Why, Why can't I do that? And like the brothers, we start to get angry against God and we shake our fists against God. God, you're not gonna tell me what to do. God, you're not going to come and get into my life and tell me what I can and can't do. You're not going to be the one who's going to be my boss. And as God continues to move in our lives, we say, hey, no, no, God. And we mock him. And then when he gets too close and too personal, we do what we can to rid ourselves of him. Just like Joseph was thrown to a group of traders never to be seen again in Egypt. We take God and we say, we want nothing to do with you. God, get out of our life. We want nothing. And sadly, we think we're done with him. But God, like Joseph, keeps coming around. And he keeps inviting himself back into our lives. And either we're going to bow down and worship him, or we're going to fight him to the end of our days. You see, you and I need forgiveness because like the brothers, we have sinned severely against the God of the universe. And we need forgiveness because if we really are honest with ourselves, we have done evil. We have transgressed. Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul says, all have sinned, all have transgressed and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wage of sin is death. And so we need to recognize as sinners, every one of us has sinned against the Holy God and done what the brothers did to Joseph. And because of that, our punishment is coming our way. And we need forgiveness from it because we will not be able to stand in its wake. Number two, notice our forgiveness is not brought about by schemes. It's not brought about by schemes. So what do the brothers do? Hey, we've got this great infraction. We have done evil against our brother. Now our brother doesn't have dad around anymore, so he's going to come at us. So we've got to do something. Notice in the text. So they sent, verse 16, a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. So notice they say, okay, write this down. Say to Joseph, okay, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants, they're writing all this down, of the God of your father. They hand it, many commentaries believe, that they hand it to Benjamin, the beloved brother of 
of Joseph, the one who was not a part of the, of the betrayal. And Benjamin or some courier takes it and says, here, here's the piece of paper. And the piece of paper says, don't hold this sin against your brothers. Uh, forgive them and, and let, let, in essence, bygones be bygones. Move on. Now here's the problem. I believe, as most scholars do, I believe that this is the brothers up to their old tricks again. Just like they told a story to, to cover their rear ends, if you will, with Jacob. Hey, Dad, we found this garment, this multicolored garment that was Joseph's look. It's all tattered. It's all bloodied. An animal must have got him. And that story had sufficed that allowed Jacob never to be of concern about what had happened uh, with his son. They never would feel the heat. So they're going back, and they're saying, listen, just like we told Dad this story, and it took the heat off of us, we can get the heat off of us by Joseph if we tell another story. If we make up a story, it'll cover our rear ends. He won't come after us. Because he'll want to obey what Dad said. Here's the problem. Because I don't want to impugn negative things on the brothers unless it's proven. Here's some proof. If Jacob wanted this message to be told, then why didn't he share it in Genesis 48 when he's talking to Joseph? Why doesn't he say, okay, listen, I'm going to bless your children, Joseph, and and he tells Joseph, I know I'm going to die soon and I want to be buried in Canaan, so promise me, swear to me, Joseph, that you're going to bury me in Canaan, and by the way, son, forgive your brothers. Don't hold it against them. I know you've been hedging your bets all this time, so when I die, don't come after them. He doesn't say anything like that. Why doesn't Jacob, when he's got the 12 brothers around, and he's blessing each of the brothers in chapter 49, does he not say, and while I've got you all here, Joseph, I know you've been holding out your vengeance until I die. Hey, in front of your brothers, commit to me you won't do this. Why doesn't he do it there? I believe the brothers are concocting a scheme to try to promote forgiveness in their lives. They're trying to do something that in essence will force forgiveness by the one they've offended. Now how does that work in our lives today? Can I tell you that human beings do this all the time when it comes to God? Now you say, how? God, I know I've wronged you. God, I know I'm sinful. And God, so I know I can go to heaven. I'm going to make sure that I do all of these good deeds, that my good deeds will outnumber my bad deeds, right? You've heard that all the time. How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I do more bad, I do more good than bad. And so that's a scheme. If I just do enough good and and try to limit my bads, God's going to have to let me into his kingdom. God's going to have to give me heaven, not hell. People will be in churches today, filled with churches, and they'll come to the communion table. And they'll say, hey, I take the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and if I do that each and every Sunday, then God's got to let me into his kingdom. God's got to forgive me of my sins. How many people have walked into the waters of baptism and said, well, because I got sprinkled or because I got dunked in water and I did it within a church, surely God is going to forgive me. How many of us have said, oh, if I serve God or if I give God money, surely he will let me go from my sin. Surely that will take care of it. All of these are schemes. They're all schemes to say, God, you have to forgive me for the wrong I've done because of X, Y, and Z that I've accomplished for you. And the scripture says, that's junk. That that's not what forgiveness is all about. Notice that forgiveness is not based on the schemes that we do. 
but it is a gift that is given to change our standing. Notice, when Joseph sees this and hears this, he weeps. Why does he weep? Because he said, brothers, you were forgiven a long time ago. Why won't you forgive yourselves? When I said you were forgiven, you were forgiven. When I said I love you, I loved you. When I said I would care for you, I cared for you. Nothing I've done up to that, from that point on to this point has shown you nothing but love and sincerity and care and benevolence. And you now think that you can do something to garner my forgiveness. It was already given. It was already given. And notice what he says. Listen. Because I'm willing to forgive you, I'm telling you not to fear. He says, don't fear. Don't fear of your standing or your relationship with me. He says, I'm going to provide for you. Everything that you need, you will have. I will take all of, all of the riches that I have, and I will bestow those riches upon you. And third, he comforts them. He speaks kindly to them. He assures them of this relationship and this love and this forgiveness that has been given. Can I tell you that's what God does with us? For some of us who have bowed the knee to Jesus, who have confessed our sins, and when we confess our sins, the Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, we come back and say, but God, what about this sin? But God, surely I've done so much bad that you can't, can't rectify it. But God, the circumstances of my life and what I've done, I can't surely be forgiven of that. And here's the crazy thing. You've been forgiven by others. You've been forgiven by God, but you won't forgive yourself. You won't forgive yourself. And here comes God, and God says, don't fear. Don't fear about your relationship with me. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I provide for you. I care for you. Don't wonder about my relationship. And, and he, he, by his Holy Spirit, inspires Paul to write, what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? He comforts us and he says, listen, there's nothing that you can do that can separate us. Jesus says, no one can pluck you out of my Father's hand. And he assures us over and over again. He provides for us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us the local church. All that we need to know that we are in the family of God. And he speaks good to us. A loving father caring for us. This is what Jesus has done for everyone who has bowed the knee to make him Savior and Lord. And believe that. And affirm that. And don't allow your emotions, don't allow your um, feelings to get in the way. Don't allow the devil to accuse you of your past. And to tell you that your past has not been forgiven. God doesn't want us to live in fear. He wants us to live in faith. Not to be concerned with what may separate us, but to believe by faith what the word says, that nothing can do that. Joseph endured all manner of struggles in order to be his brother's savior. And when they presumed that his forgiveness wasn't real, they in essence trampled underfoot the forgiveness that he had been shown. We do that with Christ when it comes to what he did on the cross. Jesus, my sin is worse than the cross. 
Jesus, what you did on the cross wasn't enough. Jesus, what you did on the cross wasn't satisfactory enough. Jesus, what you did on the cross didn't pass the muster. What I've done is far worse. No, listen, brothers and sisters. When Jesus said it was finished on the cross, your sins were taken care of. They were dealt with. And Jesus forgave you. And he forgave me. We shouldn't second guess it. Notice finally, forgiveness doesn't dismiss the evil, but saves us from its wrath. Doesn't dismiss us from the evil. Numerous times in the text we see evil, sin, transgression. In fact, Joseph even says, what you meant for evil, he calls it out. He doesn't say, you know what, I don't even remember what you did, I forgot it, uh, you know, but it all worked out and everything's fine, so let's not bring it up. No, he says, listen, what you did was evil. It was evil. What you did was painful. What you did was harmful. What you did was hurtful. What you did broke my heart. What you did, you hurt my body. What you did is you caused me to grieve. It was evil. It was sinful. And Joseph brings it up. Listen, not to, to be a... Um, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, a, uh, a downer for them. He doesn't want them to be just grieved over, man, he's not letting us go out of this. What he's trying to do is say, listen, what you did was evil, and I want you to recognize that if you don't bring that into check, you'll do that evil again. And I want you to recognize, we read the scripture and God will forget our sins. He'll remember our sins no more. And and we we start doing some weird theological gymnastics with that. And we say, okay, the omniscient God has has a case of dementia. That he forgets our sins. Well, God's omniscient. He doesn't forget things. He knows all things. And it's not like he turns off part of his brain and says, you know what, Uh, now that Tim is saved at 40 years of age, I can't remember what Tim did as a teenager. I wish I could, but I can't. No. God remembers full well what I did. God knows what I did. God was there when I did it, and he remembers today, just as he remembered back in the day, with full remembrance that which I did. And God doesn't want me to forget that. God doesn't want me to have dementia and to be like, you know what, I I don't remember those things. God says, what you did, Tim, was evil. But I want you to remember how evil that was because I want you to remember where you were at so that you will know, listen, very important, what you've become. Does that make sense? I want you to remember uh, the depths of where you came from. To understand how far I pulled you out. Joseph says, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that day you sold me into slavery. Because it will make my forgiveness today all the more sweet. You see, some of us, listen. We've been saved for a while. We've been forgiven for a while. And we have allowed ourselves to forget the depths of where God pulled us out of. And we have forgotten what the word of God says about what we were before we came to know Christ. And I will tell you how you know it is when you're on this side of redemption, you look at unbelieving people and say, oh my gosh, how dare you do that? That's sick. That's evil. I would never do that. What you've done is you've forgotten the evil that you did. The evil that was within you. That it were not for the grace of God, surely I would be with them. 
And so what God says is, I, hey, what I'm doing is I'm not holding the sin against you. I haven't forgotten it. I haven't uh, somehow lost it in my memory bank. But I want you to remember it. But I want you to remember it in the way of how far you have come because of my grace and my mercy. The brothers were full of grief, full of guilt for what they had done. And now they stood in front of the prime minister of all of Egypt, their brother. And prime minister says to him, look, you meant evil for me. But God used it for good. You see, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, uh, the greatest contrast of Scripture is laid forth, which is personified in Joseph's life in this passage. In Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, it tells us, us, all of us, were like the world, by nature, objects of God's wrath, children of wrath. And it sits us there. And it doesn't say, well, you used to be, but God forgot about it. No, we were children of wrath because of our disobedience, because we follow the devil instead of God. We are children of wrath. But the greatest word that is written in all of Scripture is the three-letter word, B-U-T. We were children of God, or children of wrath, but... But God, who is rich in mercy, saved us, for it is grace you have been saved. We were there, he's brought us here, and we need to never forget where we came from, because we will never fully appreciate where we're at. Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant was evil, but look how far my forgiveness has come. Now you don't longer have to live there, but you can live here with all the blessings and privileges of being in my family. You see, what we do with God is we fall down on the ground like Joseph's brothers do and say, we're your slaves, we're your slaves. And Jesus, like he did with the woman caught in adultery, picks us up and he says, listen, you're no longer slaves. You're my sons and my daughters. And you get to experience all the blessing and all the privileges of being in the family of God, just like Joseph said with his brothers. He saves us from the wrath, but he wants us to remember how far he's brought us by his grace. Notice finally, as we close this book, we see a lasting farewell. A lasting farewell. We're going to close out this book. In the span between verses 21... In 22, in my Bible, there's a little spot, and it says the death of Joseph. If you write in your Bibles, write down this, 54 years later. That will help you. 54 years later. From verse 21 to 22, 54 years transpire. And it says, Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. So they continued to do what they were doing. Nothing in all of the scripture there tells us that Joseph did anything different than when he was 17 than when he did when he was 110. And what we're going to learn from that are three truths about this farewell of this great man. Now it says that he lived a blessed life, dying at 110. He would not live as long as his grandfather did or his father did. In fact, he would not live as long as his brothers did. Because it says his brothers gathered around him. So being the youngest, he was one of the youngest, but seemingly died before many of his brothers did. 110, that's a good life. He would see not only his grandchildren, but his great-grandchildren. He would die a fully contented man. God had used him in powerful ways. And all, like all the great men before him and even after him, he would be taken from this life into the presence of God. But as we look at this good man's life, 
we have to ask the question, what allowed this man to accomplish all that he did? What allowed him in the good times and the bad to be faithful to God? What can we learn from his life and his legacy and put it into practice into our own? Notice three things. Number one, his theology. His theology. What enabled this man to do uh, all that he did and accomplish all that he would when the world seemingly was pitted against him? I'm here to say it was his theology. It was his understanding of who God was in his life. And because he had a right view of God, listen, he had his compass that was true north. Because he knew who God was, and as long as he kept his compass focused in on God, then whatever God would bring his way, he would know how to navigate it. And here's how I know it. The way I know his theology was right, notice in verse 19. He's talking to his brothers, and his brothers are saying, you know, what are you going to do against us? And just says, but Joseph said to him, do not fear. It's a great place to underline in your Bible. For am I in the place of God? What a huge theological statement he makes. And what he's saying is this, I am number two. I'm number two. I'm number two in everything in my life. God is number one. I do not trespass on God. I do not tell God what to do. I am number two. I'm middle management. When my boss tells me to do something, I do it. So when God told me to uh, suffer like a good soldier when I was sold into slavery, I did it. When God told me to serve my earthly masters well, and uh, no matter what was coming my way, I did it. When I was charged for a crime I didn't commit, I remained faithful even though it would cost me my freedom. I did what God called me to do, and that is run away from temptation. When I found myself in prison, I didn't bellyache or complain. I honored God and served my earthly masters well. I honored God and served him well when I was before Pharaoh. I honored and served God when I was called to take care of the needs of the Egyptian people during the famine. When I was called to forgive my brothers, I did so. When I was called to care for my family, I did because God's number one. And I take commands from God. And I will not take the place of God. Listen, some of us want the life of Joseph, but we are unwilling to listen to the theology of Joseph. We want to be number one. I want to do with my time what I will. I want to do with my money what I will. I want to do with my life what I will. God, you take orders from me. You will never live the life that Joseph lived when you think you're in charge. But when God is in charge... It will do two things. Number one, it will humble you. Notice he has a humble theology. He has a humble theology. He knows God's the main character in the story. He knows that he's a small part in God's plan. So if you look, this play is being played out. And what Joseph recognizes is when the spotlight falls on him, he says, uh-uh, put it on God. It isn't about me, it's about God. And he humbles himself, and we need to humble ourselves and say when the spotlight comes on us, no, brothers and sisters, it's not for us, it's for God. To God alone be the glory, great things he has done. And that enables us, when we recognize that, to accept the hard things that come. You see, a lot of us aren't willing to forgive people because we put ourselves in the place of God. We begin to think, well, listen, when you offended me, I'm a holy individual, I'm a righteous individual, and you've offended me, and I'm going to pour out my wrath and indignation on you because I'm perfect and you're not. 
But when we're humble, our forgiveness of one another is a whole lot easier. Because what I recognize is I'm the middleman between a holy God and an offending brother. And so here, someone has wronged me, and instead of thinking I'm God, I turn this way and say, well, he offended me, but I offended God. And God, you have forgiven me, so likewise now I turn and I forgive my brother who's offended me of this wrong. You see, Joseph knew he was a sinner and needed God's grace, and he then turns around and he gives, extends that which God had given him, he extends to his brothers. It humbles us. Notice, too, it makes us hopeful. It makes us hopeful. He says twice God will visit you. He knows that at the end of his life, God isn't done. Do you know that all of us are replaceable? Our guiding elder team is reading a book now talking about succession. And it's talking about how staff um, are replaceable. That when Tim dies, it's not in the book, thank God. Okay, when Tim dies, Village Bible Church should not say, Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? You're going to get another guy up here, maybe even better looking than the last guy. And he's going to preach the word. And he's going to fill the gap. And he's going to keep teaching God's people. And so what you should never think is, well, what's God going to do when I'm not here? What's his plan? His plan is he's going to keep going. He's going to keep visiting people. And he's going to keep drawing people. And he's going to keep growing people. And we're all replaceable. The only one who wasn't replaceable died on a cross. And his name is Jesus. And he resides on the right hand of the Father. Everybody else is a part, a small part of God's plan. And so the hope is, is that God's plan doesn't go and fall apart when I'm gone. But it continues to go on. And Joseph, at the end of his life, sees the hopeful calling of God, that God will be with his people, not just at the end of his life, but for years upon years to come. Notice his consistency. We see his theology, now we see his consistency. It's very simple. He lived to be 110. And nowhere in those 110 years does Moses ever write a bad thing about him. Does that mean he was perfect? No. But it just means he lived life well. And he was consistent in three arenas of life. Number one, he was consistent in the troubles of life. When he was being beaten up, when he was being knocked down, when he was being persecuted, when he was being falsely accused of things, he remained faithful. How about in the temptations of life? When Potiphar's wife's hitting on him and doing that which she should not do, he says, why would I do this evil thing before God? So he recognized, whether I'm in trouble or I'm in times of temptation, God, you're in charge. And I'm going to do what you've called me to, and I'm going to live that consistent, obedient life before you. But surely in the triumph of life, he would do what he wants. When everything turns out well for Joseph, he's the prime minister, he's the guy in charge. Surely he can allow himself some indulgences, right? No, he's faithful, obedient, consistent. Some of us think that we simply need to have a once-in-a-lifetime experience where we bow the knee to Jesus and we say that we love him and then we walk away from it. God does not want a false commitment from us. He wants consistency. He wants us to live faithfully. 
He wants us to live faithful in all manners of life, in all times of life, in all situations of life. He wants us to live consistently when we're by ourselves and when we're in front of the entire church and when we're in front of non-believers. He wants consistency. And Joseph shows us that. Notice his legacy, and I will close with this. How can you close the book on such a great man and a great story? Moses would dedicate the last 14 chapters of this book to this great man and the story of how God would use him. But let us never forget that the legacy of Joseph's story, as I said before, isn't about Joseph, but it's about God. There are two unforgettable attributes of God. Number one, and this is important because if, if you're living the life of Joseph right now, the hard times, these are two important truths you need to remember. Number one, God has a plan. God has a plan. If you rewind back to the beginning of the story, Genesis 37, God had a plan. Even, you know, and I said this in the first service, and I'll do it again. Listen, in Genesis 37, when Joseph comes walking in and says, Hey, guys, Dad wanted me to check in and see how things are going. And they grab him. Hey, you dreamer, we'll show you a thing or two. And they start beating him up. And then they throw him uh, into a pit, leave him for dead. And then they sell him into slavery. God's not up in heaven going, Oh, no. What are we going to do? That was our guy. He was the one that was going to change everything. And now he's gone. Now he's down in Egypt. God never did this in Joseph's life. Oh boy. He didn't look to the other person of the Trinity and say, what are we going to do now? And what that should remind us, if God's not doing this, we shouldn't do this when the trials and tribulations in our life come. What are we going to do? Listen, God's plan never was thwarted. God uses the good, the bad, and the ugly to fulfill his plan. I used an illustration uh, earlier about the providence of God. And it's hard. The providence of God is a mystery. How does God take sinful acts of sinful creatures and use it for good? How does he allow that to happen for good to take place? I don't know. It's the first question I've got for God when I get to glory, right? But one individual, I used an illustration. And the guy said, hey, I thought about it this way. And I'm like, I'm stealing that from you. And I'm not even going to tell people who gave it to me. I'm going to take it as my own. And this is what the guy said. He says, I see the providence of God like my GPS in the car. You see, in my GPS in the car, it tells me the beginning to the end. It shows me the destination. And I can press through and I can see the destination from where I started, left turn here, right turn here, curve here, turn there, all of that, I get to the location. But what happens when I sin? What happens when I decide to go right when God said go left? What does our GPS do? Rerouting. Rerouting. I want the one that says, hey, moron, you went the wrong way. Turn around. Every once in a while when we're driving, I like to just rebel against the GPS. Make a U-turn. Make a U-turn. Make a U-turn. It's like, who's in the car here? Come on, guy. I'm telling you where to go, and you're not going that way. Listen, it still gets me to where I need to go. And what God's providence is, is you choose to turn right instead of left, and God says, rerouting, it's going to take you a little longer, might run into traffic, might become a more hazardous way to go, but I'll get you there. You're going to end up there. And I think that that's true of God's plan for Joseph. You see, God's detours are good detours. When God says rerouting, he's telling you, go this way. This way, though it hurts, this way, though it seems difficult, is the right way to go because in the end, I will get you to where I wanted you to be. 
And he's doing that in all of our lives. But if you think that he's doing so far away and unconcerned about it, let me tell you, God is always present. One of the things we learn early in the story, in the middle of the story, and in the last part of the story, God is always present. He's always present. He was always with Joseph. He was with Joseph when he was with his dad. He was with Joseph when he was in the pit. He was with Joseph when he was taken into slavery in Egypt. He was with Joseph, the text says, when he was in Potiphar's house. He was with Joseph when he was in prison. He was with Joseph when he was prime minister. And he was with Joseph on the very last day of his life. God was always with him. He was always with him. Over and over again, we read, the Lord was with Joseph. And it reminds us, listen, that he's with us. He's with us. He would make the ultimate visitation. Notice twice in our text, it says that he will visit you. He will visit you. What God was doing in Joseph's life, Joseph says, will happen in your life. And he was with Moses later on. He was with Joshua. And he was with the judges. And he was with the prophets. And, and he was with all manner of people in the Old Testament. And then we turn the page of the book of Matthew. And we come to what this week signifies. Emmanuel, help me out, God with us. And he visited us. And he put on flesh and he made his dwelling with us. And he taught us what his real forgiveness is all about. And he taught us what living a life for him is all about. And he walks with us and he talks with us. And he gives us assurance. He cares for us. He does all that God did. And he brings about his plan in our lives He sits in the car with us, and he says, go left. Now turn right. Now go straight. And he tells us in faraway places, listen, I've got plans for you, and I've got promises for you. Let me close with this. Joseph tells his brothers, I want you to make a promise to me. I want you to take me out of Egypt when you go. Brothers are like, what are you talking about? We live in Egypt. This is where we live. Don't bury me too deep in the ground. Keep me above ground. Put me in a coffin, embalm me, but don't put me in the ground. Don't put me in one of the pyramids. Why? Because Joseph remembers what his dad had been told by God himself. Your land is in Canaan. You have a promised land. And so Joseph says, listen, God fulfills his promises. And he's going to be with us every step of the way. And so when God visits us and says, Egypt no longer is going to be our home, I want you to take me with you because I believe in the promise of a promised land. And 400 years later, 400 years later, when the Pharaoh, if you look at Exodus chapter 1, when the Pharaoh who was the new king, chapter 8, or chapter uh, 1, verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And the people of Israel were put into captivity and became slaves to the Egyptians. And they would sit there and suffer great persecution and great struggle. 400 years later, God would use another great man, Moses, who would, by God's strength and power, bring the ten plagues to Egypt. And Pharaoh, after saying he would not let his people go, would finally say, okay, go, get out of Dodge. Three million Israelites would walk out of Egypt without a fire being shot. And Moses, we are told, in Exodus 13, 19, in the hurrying up 
of the great exodus announces to the people of Israel, don't forget Joseph's bones. Go get Joseph's coffin. Because that had been a reminder to the people of God during all those times of slavery that great times were coming. The exodus was about to take place. And we are told then that he is carried around for 40 years of the wilderness. And in Joshua 24, 32, he is buried in the land that his dad gave him in Canaan. God promises us that when we live by faith, when we obey and we trust... That God has plans for us and promises a life of blessing in the life to come. Take heart to the words that have been spoken. Take heart to the story and apply it as sensible people would. And hear what God has to say and to teach you from this great man, Joseph. As a little kid, the words of a song are apropos for the closing of this Message because when we look at Joseph's life, we are reminded to trust and obey. Oh, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So Joseph did, and he was a blessed man. We can be too when we trust and obey. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that it would challenge the hearers' hearts. Wherever we find ourselves in our journey of faith, Lord, that we would take what has been shared today and we would apply it, that it would change our lives, that we would be doers of the word, not simply hearers of it, so that, Lord, we might see your good and precious promises for us, that we might see more clearly the plans that you have for us. And even, Lord, at times when you may send us in places we don't want to go, that we would trust you and we would obey you so that we may honor you in the good, the bad, and the ugly of our life. Encourage our hearts by the example of Joseph and allow that to serve as a model. But Lord, like Joseph, we are all sinners. And Lord, as great as Joseph was, there was one even greater than him, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the gift of Jesus, for the forgiveness that Jesus gave us because of the cross. Lord, remind us and encourage us and assure us of that forgiveness so that we can live not as slaves, but as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Thank you for that forgiveness. Thank you for not giving up on us. And thank you for blessing us as you do each and every day. To God, you be the glory for the great things you have done. We love you. We give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.